This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Please open your Bibles to the book of Judges, book of Judges chapter 14. If you need a Bible, you can shoot your hand up in the air. We have people in the back who'd be happy to get a copy of God's Word into your hands this morning. If you're new with us, what we typically do here at Christ Church is we pick a book of the Bible and we go through it systematically. The reason we do that is because we believe that the Bible has been inspired by God. And so even when we're reading history, what we're reading is history that God's preserved because he wants to speak to us through it. And so we go through the Bible systematically so we can hear God speak to us in the original context in which he inspired these things to be written. We are uh, in a series in this book called Judges, and this book we've seen is really about a central theme that keeps getting repeated. The theme is that God's people are caught in a cycle. The cycle is that they worship God, but then they turn from God and begin to worship other things. They put other things in the place that God is only meant to occupy. They turn from God. As a result, they end up finding themselves in a lot of trouble. Um, they cry out to God in their distress. God raises up a judge to come and deliver them out of their distress. This judge is not someone who wears a black gown and bangs a gavel. This judge is, is another word for a deliverer, a rescuer, a ruler, or a savior. Um, the judge delivers them from their troubles. They're okay for a bit. And then they once again turn away from God, and the cycle repeats. And at this point in the book, we're seeing not only is the cycle repeating, but it's actually getting worse. Every time it repeats, the people even get bigger in their sin, and the judges themselves even become more and more corrupt. This morning, we're going to meet the last judge that, that we're introduced to here in the book of Judges. His last judge, he's by far the most famous judge, his name is Samson. We saw his birth story last week, and it was this really sweet story of God's grace. But this morning, we're going to meet Samson all grown up. We're going to see him do some really crazy feats of strength that show that God is with him. But we're also going to see Samson display some tremendous weakness of character that show that Samson is not really with God. And as we come to stories like this in the Bible... God didn't inspire this history to be written so that we could just look at Samson's flaws and feel better about ourselves. No, these are opportunities for us to look at the life of another and consider what God might be trying to say through them to us about ourselves. See, God loves us so much that he wants to rescue us from the sinful cycles that can so often plague our lives which is a very good thing, but can also be a very sometimes uncomfortable thing. Because often I think we'd rather spare our feelings than face our problems. We'd rather stay comfortable in a life that we don't really like than be challenged to pursue the better life that God actually has. It is so easy to live a life of denial that keeps us stuck in a cycle of experiencing things that we hate we just don't want to put in the work to change. But while denial might spare our feelings, 
it will absolutely also sabotage our future. Because we cannot fix what we're unwilling to face. We cannot change anything that we're unwilling to name. It's been said that the devil is in the details, but I think it's also true to say that the devil is in denial. We have an enemy who wants to keep us from the good things that God has for us, and the Bible calls this enemy the prince of darkness, and that's what the devil wants to do. He wants to keep us in darkness. He wants us to not be able to see the things that are in our lives that are holding us back from the better life that God has for us. But God in his love wants to turn some lights on. God's love was to turn some lights on so that we might see things that could be hard, but will also be healing. God never shows us things about ourselves to harm us or to shame us, but because he loves us so much that he wants to rescue us. And so God wants to deliver us from denial so that he can get to work on shaping us more and more into the people that he has created us to be for our great joy and his wonderful glory. And so I'm going to tell this morning's sermon, Deliverance from Denial. Deliverance from Denial. And how I want to work through chapter 14 of Judges is by going through it in four sections. So we're not going to read it all up front. We're going to read it in four different chunks. And each section is going to give us a hard truth that God wants to show us. A hard truth that God wants us to wrestle with in our lives. So that he can rescue us from the life that we settle for and lead us into the better life that he has. The first hard truth comes in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 14. Before I lead us into reading God's word, I want to just prepare our hearts to hear God's word being read and then preached. So let's just have a moment of prayer and ask God to speak to us in this time. And I want to encourage you to have a moment of prayer between you and God. Just ask God, give me open heart to hear what you're about to say. And I could use prayer too, so please pray for me, that I be strengthened by the Spirit to speak in a way that's helpful to you. God, we are here because you have brought us here, because you love us, and so there are things that you want us to see in your word today that are for our good. So God, I pray that you give us eyes to see what you want to show us. You give us hearts to receive what you want to give us and ears to hear what you want to say to us. I pray that you would do this so that Christ might be more treasured by us and you will be more glorified as a result. Praise the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's turn our attention to God's word. Judges chapter 14, the first four verses. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and said to his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah, now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives, or among all your people, that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. These verses are shocking 
when we consider their context. We saw last week how, parent, how Samson's parents had been unable to have children. But God said, I'm going to give you a son. And this son will deliver my people Israel from their slavery to the Philistines. Because this son had been born for divine purpose, he was supposed to live in a particular way. His parents were told that from even before he was born into the world, from the very days where he lived in his mother's womb, he was to be a Nazarite. And so his mother actually had to be a Nazarite, so that way he could always be a Nazarite, even from his first moments of life. To be a Nazarite was not being from the land of Nazareth. It was a reference to the Nazarite vow, which is found in Numbers chapter 6. The Nazarite vow was something that people did to show that they were living for a specific purpose that God had given them. So these were not rules everyone had to follow, but they were given to those who had specific tasks. The Nazarite vow had three stipulations that people had to follow when they were under the Nazarite vow. They were not to drink any alcohol, they were not to touch anything that was dead, and they were not to cut their hair. And yet, the first thing that we see Samson do when he is grown up and we see him taking action for himself, the first thing we see Samson do is go down to Timnah, which in the ancient world, Timnah was known as the place to go for the best vineyards. This is like saying that Samson took a trip to Napa Valley. Now, if he's supposed to stay away from alcohol, what is he doing going to wine country? This is supposed to seem fishy to us. Samson is in a place that he should not have been. And while he was in this place that he should not have been, he sees a woman that he has no business being with. He sees a Philistine. Samson had been born to fight the oppression of the Philistines. But he sees her and he wants to marry her. This is not just him falling in love. We need to understand. This is Samson making a conscious decision to turn his back on God and who God had called him to be. His parents are rightly horrified. And they say, how can you take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? In this time period, circumcision was a sign that people had given, that God had given his people as a physical marker of the spiritual reality that, that a person was his follower. And so his father is drawing Samson's attention to the fact that these people are not those who want to follow God. He's saying, these are our oppressors. These are slave masters. These are our enemies. These are the ones you're supposed to be delivering us from. But Samson says, get her anyways, for she is right in my eyes. In fact, three times in the first three verses, the author of Judges points out to us that Samson is being driven by what he sees. Verse 1, he saw a daughter of the Philistines. Verse 2, he tells his father, I saw this woman. Verse 3, he says, she is right in my eyes. Whenever you're reading the Bible and you see something repeated like that, that's God trying to draw our attention to it. What, what is Samson being driven here? What is it informing and shaping the choices that he's making? Samson is being driven not by what God had said, but instead what he sees. Samson is being ruled by what he wants instead of what God had said was for his good. Now verse 4 does say that God was going to use this as an opportunity against the Philistines. So God's going to use this situation of Samson marrying this 
Philistine woman to stir up some, some issues between Samson and the Philistines. They'll then get Samson doing what he's supposed to be doing, and that's, that's fighting the Philistines. But just because God is going to use this does not mean that God sanctioned this. Listen, God is so powerful that he can work his saving purposes even through sinful choices. But that doesn't mean that sinful choices are not sinful choices. No, they are. And so just because God can redeem regrets does not mean that we should walk into a life and just pursue regrets. Samson is sinning against the Lord here. He is clearly not following God. Regardless of what he might, might have said with his lips, his life is telling the true story. This is not a man ruled by God's word, but instead ruled by his own wants. Samson is driven by his desires. Which that takes us to the first hard truth that we need to see in this text. We need to see the hard truth that our desires are bad drivers. Our desires are bad drivers. And this is a hard truth for us to hear because it's the exact opposite message that we hear in our culture time and time again. In our culture, we're told time and time again that suppressing your desires is bad, unhealthy, and even dangerous. Doing what is right in our eyes, we are told, is wonderful. But actually, what we're seeing here is, according to Scripture, doing what is right in our eyes is the very definition of what it means to be sinful. See, there's only two ways to live. Doing what is right in your eyes or doing what is right in God's eyes. And how we choose to live says a lot about who we think God is. Do we think God is someone who loves us and who wants what is best for us and who knows better than us? Or do we trust ourselves more than him? In other words, do we think we're actually better than God? Sin is not just doing bad things, friends, or doing something wrong. Sin is not just violating some arbitrary moral standard. Sin is about turning our backs on God and scorning him. Sin is saying, I'm better at running my life than you are because I'm better than you. We might not think that, but that is what our sin shows is ruling our hearts. Sin is rebellion against God and a disdain for his love, which creates a problem between us and him. And it also creates a problem between us and one another. If we all live by Jesus' commands on the Sermon on the Mount, like, it, like we follow what he said and obeyed him, love one another, forgive each other, prefer one another, show grace, there'd be no wars, there'd be no wronging each other, there'd be no conflict, but we don't live his way, we do things our way, and that's where pride and lust and jealousy and meanness and bitterness and conflicts enters in. Because if I'm doing what's right in my eyes, and you're doing what's right in your eyes, and we're not seeing up eye to eye, now we have an issue. When I'm being ruled by what I want, and someone is doing something that I don't want, now me and that person are going to have a problem. And so James 4.1 says that our conflicts come because there are desires in our own hearts that are at war within us. Our desires are bad drivers because living our way puts us in opposition with one another and is rebellion against God who created us to live his way. And so we will never live in the good of what God has for us if we're being driven and ruled 
by thinking we know better than him. Our desires are bad drivers. So we need to face this truth and consider, are there areas in my life where I'm being ruled by what I want more than what God actually says? Where in my life might I be driven by what I see and what I feel instead of what God says is true, right, and good? Our desires are bad drivers. The story continues in verses 5 through 9, and it really shows us the second hard truth that we need to con- confront. The story continues and says, And Samson went down with his mo- father and mother to Timnah. They came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the, young, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with this woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. This is the first of what will be many incredible feats of strength that Samson does. A lion comes and he tears it apart with his bare hands like one tears a young goat. Now, that doesn't help me at all because I've never torn on a young goat. So I don't really know what that means, but I think it means it's easy. Uh, This is power, friends. This is power. This is strength. I mean, I don't care how strong you are. The strongest person in the world, you put them in a ring against the lion, they're losing. Like, if there's a lion in the ring... And then you hear, like, you smell what the rock is cooking, and Dwayne the Rock Johnson comes out. I mean, I'm a big rock fan, but I hate to tell you, he's still going down. Like, that rock about to get cracked. Like, like you just don't win in a fight against a lion. But that's what Samson does. The Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and he is strengthened. Why? Because, because that lion's coming at him, and God's like, no, my purposes for you are not yet accomplished. And so I'm going to save your life by giving you strength to defeat this animal. And so he kills this lion. But, but, but notice, it says he doesn't tell his parents about it. And so his parents were with him, but at some moment they must have been separated. And now he's by himself. We'll see why in a minute. And he's by himself, and he tears this lion apart. And he doesn't tell them about it at all. Why? Like, like you would think that if, if he had just, you know, torn apart a lion with his bare hands, this is a good moment to take a selfie. You know, like, it's a good moment to, like, go viral. Like, let's live stream this, John. Like, let's, let, 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 let's get this out there, right? Like, I just killed a lion. You'd think that'd be what Samson's doing. But that's not all what happens here. He, he is covering himself up. Why? Why is he not telling his parents that he killed this lion? Well, where is he when he kills this lion? He's in the vineyards of Timnah. Should we have given him the benefit of the doubt in verse 1 that maybe he went down to Timnah just because he liked the weather there? Here, here the author is really actually showing us what's going on with Samson. He's in a vineyard, and he doesn't want to tell anyone what's going on with this lion because he's in a vineyard doing what one does when you're in a vineyard. Samson is breaking his vow. He is drinking some alcohol. This is the first time, and we're going to see shortly, this won't be the last time he does that. He's covering... And so he doesn't tell his parents what happened to the lion because he's covering up his sin. And that little cover-up leads to another cover-up. He goes back the next day because getting drunk once is never good enough. You always want to go do it again. 
he comes back the next day and he sees honey in the lion and he goes and eats some. What's the Nazarite vow? Don't drink and don't touch anything that's dead. And so here we are, only nine verses into Samson's life, and he's already breaking two out of the three parts of his vow. Maybe he's not the, the superhero that if you grew up in the church you heard about. No, this is a very deeply flawed and sinful man. This is a man who's not being ruled by what God says at all. He's just doing whatever he wants in the, any given moment. The honey looks sweet. And so he taught, saw and took it, and he didn't care that death was around it. Friends, sin often presents itself as sweet and will try to get us to focus on the momentary pleasure it offers without seeing the end result it leads to. So sin loves to show us the party but hide the life of addiction. Sin loves to show us sex but hide the heartbreak of a broken family. Sin loves to show us how good it will feel to vent that anger but hide the devastation we leave in its wake. It wants to show us how nice it will be to feel self-righteous about who you are, but hide about how far from God you actually are. Sin often presents itself as sweet as honey, but it is surrounded by death. But Samson takes the honey from this dead body, breaking even more of his vow, and then he goes and he gives some of this honey to his parents, and they eat it not knowing that it was sinfully taken. Samson's sin is now spreading to others. His sin is affecting the lives of other people. This is one of the lies that we can tell ourselves in our sin. Oh, this will only affect me. No, it won't, friends. Our sin rarely stay contains in our lives. If left unaddressed, it will spill out and affect those around us. Samson made a small decision to be where he shouldn't which led to a bigger decision to do something that he shouldn't, which led to an even bigger decision to spread that to others. And I just have to wonder, if he had confessed in the first place, maybe none of these things would have happened. If he had just come clean and told his parents, yeah, I was in the vineyard, then maybe he doesn't go back the next day and touch this body of death. Maybe he doesn't take out the honey then and spread it to his parents. But here's the hard truth that we're seeing displayed to us in this section. Covering sin up only makes sin worse. Covering sin up only makes sin worse. Samson was unwilling to confess where he'd been, and that act of silence compounded over time. Because any time that we don't speak about our struggles, we're only empowering our struggles and making them worse. And yet how often... We'd rather hide what's going on than be honest about what our sin is that we're struggling with. We can feel embarrassed. I should have done better. I should know better. I just can't confess that again. We can be worried about consequences. What will this mean for me if this comes out about me? We can try to even be spiritual about it. You know, I confess my sins to God. No one, else, no one else needs to know. God tells us in his word in James chapter 5, 16, that we are actually to confess our sins one to another. That, that, that's how we're healed. Because God knows that when we are silent, when we keep things hidden, which us confessing just to the Lord, let's be clear, that's just an excuse to keep things hidden. 
When we stay silent, when we keep things hidden, the sin we cover up only gets worse. Listen, you will not find one example in the Bible. Read it from cover to cover. You will not find one example in the Bible of someone staying silent about their sin and then actually being able to change from it. There's not a single example. But time and time again, what we see is that when someone's struggle is brought out into the light, that's when God starts to work powerfully in their lives. Now, now not everyone in Scripture comes into the light willingly. Some people get caught. They don't confess. So some people get exposed, things that they didn't want to naturally show. But the point is that every time things get made known, that's when God shows up, and that's when the work of redemption begins. Covering sin up only makes it worse. But coming clean, friends, that's where grace is shown. This is one of the many reasons that I just want to continue to encourage you to cultivate relationships in your life with other Christians where you can be honest about your struggles. I'm personally so deeply grateful for the people that I meet with on a weekly basis that know what's going on with me. Friends, it is such a sweet blessing to be fully known and to have no hidden shame. You need people who know you. You need people who know you so they can pray for you and encourage you and hold you accountable and, yes, even sometimes correct you and help you keep moving forward. If you don't have people in your life, friends, then... I don't think your life is headed anywhere good. Lone Christians are rarely thriving Christians. We need people in our lives who know us. And so if you're not really sure what, how to do that, if you don't have those people in your life, like this is why we as a church aren't just structured together on Sunday. This is why we have community groups. This is why we have Bible studies. These are contexts that we put in place so that you can cultivate relationships where you can get deeper with other people. Now, it's not just as easy as showing up at those places. Because I've been a Christian long enough to know that someone can show up at a Bible study and learn a lot more Bible facts, but not actually talk about what's going on in their lives. Yet, friends, what are we doing if, like, we're winning Bible trivia games, but, like, we have a hidden addiction that we're not telling anyone about, or our marriage is a mess, or we just blew up at someone on the way here, but like, I can tell you who Joash's father is. Friends, Scripture, we should know it. We should give our lives to the study of it. We're not fully getting into it if we're not actually applying it. How easy it is to show up at a community group and just enjoy a good time and have fun and laugh and, and show up contributing, you know, something to the meal, but not contributing actually our vulnerability what's going on in our own lives. Friends, we need people in our lives who know us because covering sin up only makes it worse and yet there's such a sweet blessing to be found in being, in being known. Our story continues in verses 10 through 14. It says, His father went down to the woman and Samson prepared a feast there for so the young men used to do. And as soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I'll give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. They said, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days, they could not solve the riddle. 
We see here that Samson's dad setting up this wedding feast for Samson. And I find that so sad. His dad had earlier in verse 3 told him, son, don't do this. This is a bad idea. His dad had initially been opposed to Samson taking this sinful step. But Samson must have worn him down, and now this dad is giving up on him by giving in to him. How sad it is when we give up on people and affirm them in their sin instead of continuing to hold out God's truth to them and believe that God can change their hearts. Listen to me, friends. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do for someone is to oppose them when they're doing something that is for their own harm. Our culture wants to say that to love someone is to affirm them. Friends, is it loving of a doctor to affirm someone who has cancer and withhold the treatment of chemo from them? No, that's malpractice. How often can we be guilty of malpractice in our lives because we're standing by instead of standing up? Friends, when we are not saying and challenging and calling people on their sin. Not that we need to be the sin police. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that when we are, when we are going along and enabling people in things that are wrong, that is giving up on God and doubting that he can work in their lives. Samson's dad gives up on him by giving in to him. And he decides to go along with what Samson wants and throws this feast. And it's a feast, we're told, as the young men do, which is an ancient colloquialism for saying it's a drinking party. This is a rager. It's going to go on for about a week. Samson's no longer dabbling in the vineyard. Now he's openly breaking his vow. He's marrying a woman he shouldn't have, and he's partying with the people that he's supposed to be fighting. And he's drinking in betrayal of the commitment he was supposed to make to God. And then as he's doing all this, he, he's like, well, let me, try to, let me try to get something out of this. And so he says, I want to tell you a riddle. And if you don't get it right, then I get 30 linen garments. And if, I, and if you do get it right, then I'll give you 30 linen garments. These linen garments weren't just like clothes. Um, this was saying like, you know, you're going, you're going to deck me out in Versace. Like, these are very expensive clothes. This has been a very costly wager. And the people are thinking like, well, hey, yeah, one guy, all of us, like I'm sure we can crack this code. So he tells them the riddle. What's the riddle about? The riddle's about the lion and the honey. Now, we just saw how sinful it was for Samson to go and take the honey out of the lion. He's breaking his vow. He's disobeying God. He should have been horrified by that. He should have turned in brokenness and repentance to the Lord over what he had done. But here, he's making a game out of his sin. He just doesn't really care. You see, sometimes we cover sin up. but Sometimes we just get callous. And we stop really caring about it in the first place. Sometimes we can take sin lightly. Maybe because we feel like it's not that big a deal. Right? Samson's here, he's like, okay, I'm breaking my vows, I'm doing these things, but at least I'm not like these other Philistines, these are terrible people, so maybe he's, maybe he's justifying this by saying we're not as bad as them, I'm not sure, I'm just saying we can do that sometimes. He's, 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 taking it, he's taking his sin lightly, how big a deal is it for me to touch this dead thing? He's taking his sin lightly. This is what we need to understand, friends. Taking sin lightly is not taking God seriously. Taking sin lightly. It's the third hard truth 
taking sin lightly, is not taking God seriously. I used to lead a community group back in my old church, and one of the questions we'd regularly ask ourselves is, hey, where do you want to grow this week? So that we could like, you know, know how to pray for one another. And as we met, it just felt like week after week, people would go around the room, and it'd be the same answer. Uh, I didn't really read my Bible much this week. I want to grow and read that. I want to grow and read that. And it became almost like a joke. Just put me down for what I had last time. You know, a little chuckle. Just put me down. Yeah, still, still me, still that. Still got that going on. Just put it down. And at one point, I just felt compelled to stop the group and be like, do any of us actually care about this? Like, we're naming our struggle. That's great. But why are we not bothered by our struggle? God says his word is life. He says this is where we meet Jesus. Jesus told us we need his word as our very daily bread. And so if we say that we love Christ, then why are we so casual neglecting him and not doing what he says? It became a very awkward community group at that moment. That's okay. God can work in awkwardness. We needed to be sobered because we had gotten used to things that God had said should be concerning to us. Friends, I just want to ask you, are there things in your life that you've gotten used to? Is there sin that you've almost made a game of? Are there things that you know probably aren't that good, but you just take it lightly instead of seeing it as something that offends the most holy God? Taking sin lightly, friends, is not taking God seriously. Which takes us to the final section of the story that we read in verses 15 through 20. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You put a riddle to my people and you've not told me what it is. He said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 of the men of that town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Samson tells this riddle. No one can figure it out. And so they threaten his wife. Find out the answer, or we'll kill you, and we'll kill your family. This gives you a little bit of a picture into the horrific society that the Philistines were. Like these were a brutal people. No wonder God did not want his people to have anything to do with these people. Samson's wife puts on the waterworks and she wears him down over time and he eventually gives up the answer. So the guys come back and they beat Samson at his game and he is furious. Verse 18, he's like, man, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. You know, you, you know it's not a good sign in your marriage when you're calling your wife a heifer. Um, it's a little, bit of a little bit of a red flag. But we need to understand that there, there's more than just name calling going on here. 
People didn't plow with heifers back then. They plowed with oxen. And so this is actually an ancient way of saying, you just did something that was wrong. You just did something that was not supposed to be done. Samson is upset that they cheated. He's outraged that they'd done him wrong. And so to fulfill his debt, Samson goes and kills a bunch of Philistines so that he can take their clothes and give them back to these guys. Now, verse 19 says that the Spirit of the Lord rushed, rushed upon him and strengthened him to do that. Again, one man against 30, I don't care if you're Bruce Lee, you're not winning that fight. This is, this is a supernatural feat of strength. Remember, Samson's whole purpose in life is that he's supposed to be fighting the Philistines. So here, when he finally does that, even though it's for sinful motives, God gets behind him and empowers him. But Samson isn't looking to walk out his purpose. He just stops with repaying his debt. So he kills these men. He doesn't want to go out to battle, doesn't want to do more than that. He kills these men, he takes their cloaks, which means he is again doing what? He's touching dead bodies and breaking his vow. And so while Samson is angry at these Philistines for guessing his riddle, Who's Samson's biggest problem in this passage? He's the one who's not supposed to be drinking, but is thrown in a drinking party. He's the one who's supposed to rescue God's people from their enemies, but he's marrying the enemy and partying with her people. And so for all the wrong that the Philistines had done to Samson and to his people, Samson's biggest problem is himself. Samson is sinning all over the place. But instead of dealing with his stuff, he'd rather point out what's wrong with these other people. Because how easy it is to get mad at others than it is to look in the mirror. But here's the hard truth that we and he and we need to face. My biggest problem is me. My biggest problem is me. And your biggest problem is you. Listen, we'll never grow if we go through life focusing on other people and excusing ourselves. That's not to say that people can't do wrong to us. That's not to say people can't hurt us deeply. Absolutely they can. But at the end of the day, we are not responsible for other people. But we are responsible for ourselves and the choices that we make. And so the biggest problem in our lives is not the people around us, but the person we always take with us wherever we go. And that person is ourselves. This is what our Lord Jesus taught. Matthew chapter 7, verse 3. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye? Do not notice the log that's in your own eye. It is so easy to go through life being like, well, this person did that, and this person did that, and this thing happened to me. And all those things might be true. And you might need some therapy to like, work through that stuff. I'm not trying to de- deny that or downplay that at all. We need to understand that if we go through life focusing on all the specs, then we're never addressing our real problem, which is our own lo- log. It's sticking out of our own eye, and we're whacking everyone over the head with it. We need to understand that we will never grow we go through life focusing on what's happened to us or the people around us instead of looking at what's going on in our own hearts. And just to prove that point, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you right now are hoping, I really hope this other person hears that point? How easy we can think that the, the issue is someone else. 
but we will not change if we go through life focusing on other people and excusing ourselves. We won't grow if we don't face the hard truth that my biggest problem is me. Samson, as we see in this passage, he's, he's a pretty hot mess. And the reality is, we can be a pretty hot mess too, can't we? But here's the good news. God has not shown us this mess just to leave us there. God doesn't show us messes to leave us, but to rescue us. And God's rescue happens at this intersection of seeing our need for God, seeing where we sin, and understanding how God meets us in that need in Jesus. Jesus said that all the Bible is ultimately about him. And so in passages like this, not only are we meant to look into God's word as a mirror and see our own flaws reflecting back to us. No, we don't just look into God's word and see ourselves. We're meant to look into God's word and see Christ. And so who is Jesus in this passage? Jesus is the savior we need for these hard truths that we have to face. Growth in our lives, friends, happens at the intersection of being honest about where we need Jesus in our lives and then understanding more and more how Jesus meets us in those very places. This is not meant just to point out our flaws to us, but to point us to our Savior who came for us. And so let me just close with a story to try to try to make what I'm saying plain. Over 10 years ago when we first moved here to South Philly, our car got what will be one of many, many, many flat tires. I don't know what it is, but like I was driving for about 10 years in the Burbs, not one single flat tire, you know, 10 days in South Philly, and I got two. It's like, what on earth is going on, right? So, so I did what any normal suburbanite will do. I Googled, where's the closest Pep Boys? And I went there to go buy new tires. A few days later, I was complaining to my neighbor about what happened, and he said, why would you go there? The place is a ripoff. No offense if anyone works for Pep Boys. And then my neighbor introduced me to that magical South Philly phrase. Don't do that. I've got a guy. Right? Right? I've got a guy for that. And he introduced me to his tire guy. Right? Who could patch up tires for cheap. And that's how I learned that here in South Philly, when you got an issue, you don't Google it. You don't just go to the chain store. No, you ask around. And at some point, someone's going to tell you, here's my guy. Here's where you should go. I've yet to find a need where someone doesn't have a guy who can help with that need. And I say that to say this, friends. What I'm trying to tell you is that no matter what you got going on, no matter which of these hard truths that we need to face, we've got a guy for that. We've got Jesus Christ. We've got the God who became man and lived the life we couldn't, then died the death we deserve, rose to new life to prove that he truly is who he says he is, the savior of our souls. He is now ascended into heaven where he lives to be our ever-present help in time of need. And so when we see that our desires are bad drivers, we've got a guy for that. And Jesus shows us that the God who loved us enough to die for us is a better driver than us. And thriving in life is to be Found through living in obedience to the one who gave his life for ours. And when we see that covering up our sin is only making it worse, friends, we've got a 
die for that. And Jesus shows us that since he ripped apart the line of sin, Satan, and death, and made the sweet honey of salvation flow out of those enemies of decay, we can be honest when we sin. We can come clean and talk about our struggles with others because there's no sin we can name that Jesus didn't die for on the cross. There's no struggle we have that's greater than the Savior who is. There is no guilt that we carry that is more than his grace. I'm pretty sure that 1 John 1, 9 is still in the Bible, and it still says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And when we see how we've been taking sin lightly and not taking sin seriously, friends, we've got a guy for that. And Jesus shows us that there's no playing games about the seriousness of sin when we look at his blood-stained cross. Jesus died because sin is deadly serious. And yet the cross shows us not only the seriousness of our sin, but also the love of God who is willing to take on death for you and for me. And when we see that our biggest problem is ourselves, we've got a guy for that. We don't need to point our fingers at others and try to cast the blame elsewhere. No, we can run to his outstretched arms of love because they're outstretched towards us. Friends, growth happens through admitting the places in our lives where we need Jesus and then learning more and more from Jesus about how he wants to meet us in those places. Or in other words, as Charles Spurgeon said so many years ago, we have a great need for Christ and we have a great Christ for our need. And that's how change happens. Change happens by not denying the truths that we need to face, but admitting them and coming clean. And then not just staying with that, but meeting Jesus there and seeing how he can change us and grow us and turn us more into the people that he has created us to be. And so, friends, as we read passages like this, may God give us a righteous restlessness to not be content to live in denial, but instead to pray the prayer of Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Friends, that's a prayer that will deliver you from denial and take you straight into the arms of Jesus. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.